Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. It's good to be back. We got hung up on some technical issues last week, so we missed a week, and I hate when that happens. Anyway, Drilling Deep is the place in the Freight Cash family of podcasts where we drill deep into an issue of the week, and we also drill deep into the world of oil where you have to drill it to get it. Our guest of the week this week is my colleague, Brian Strait. He's now the editor of Modern Shipper, and he's going to talk about what he heard at a conference of people in Philadelphia who are trying to master one of the trickiest parts of the supply chain, that final mile into people's homes. He's got some great perspectives, some good stories, and he's going to join us in a minute. In a few weeks, on September 22nd, FreightWaves has its virtual fuel buyer summit. At that summit, I'm going to be interviewing John Hours, who is a longtime oil refining analyst with the company of Turner Mason. Our subject is going to be renewable diesel, which is a growing fuel for the trucking sector. Not only that, but I listened into a virtual conference on renewable diesel just the other day, hosted by S&P Global Platts, where I used to work. It was a good one. Ours is going to be a bit different since ours is directed mostly at the users of diesel fuel, as opposed to the energy professionals who were the focus of the Platts conference. But between getting ready for my interview with John and listening to the Platts event, I thought that I would talk a bit here today about renewable diesel because it is a growing source of fuel, maybe. And whenever you get that, you can get misinformation about it too. First of all, renewable diesel is not biodiesel. It's made from a lot of the same feedstocks like restaurant grease or crushed soybeans, but biodiesel can't be used straight. You can't just pour biodiesel into a truck and power it down the highway. But renewable diesel goes to a far greater and more complicated level of processing. And yes, you can run a truck 100% on renewable diesel. It's an exact copy of diesel, so it isn't the same as biodiesel. Second, the vast majority of it is consumed in California and other parts of the West Coast. Why is that? That's because California and Oregon have low carbon fuel standards known as the LCFS. They are state efforts to reduce the carbon footprint of their transportation fuels. If you can show that you supply the market with fuels that have a lower carbon footprint than standard gasoline or diesel, you generate credits. Those credits can then be sold to companies that are in danger of missing their own low-carbon targets. Renewable diesel's carbon footprint is low enough that it generates a very good number of low-carbon fuel credits, so much that the Platt seminar showed data that renewable diesel is now the biggest source of LCFS credits in the state, and the price of them is near the legal cap that the state set in California. So that can make it very profitable to make renewable diesel. There are a bunch of other incentives to make renewable diesel. In the same way that California fuel suppliers need to meet low-carbon fuel standards, all refiners in the country need to meet renewable fuel standards. Those are generally met by blending ethanol into gasoline, but not entirely. If a company falls short of its uh, mandate, it can buy renewable identification numbers, known as RINs. It's just really a a credit. Uh, RINs can be a major, major cost. For some refiners whose distribution systems aren't set up to generate a lot of their own RINs, making renewable diesel and putting it into the petroleum distribution system, that act generates RINs. So that's another incentive to make renewable diesel. There are refineries that are shutting down and being replaced with renewable diesel facilities through conversion of existing operations. But let's be careful about this. The amount of renewable diesel that is coming out of those converted plants is not the same amount of petroleum diesel that came out of the refineries that are being shut. That's why earlier I said renewable diesel maybe will be an additional source of diesel supplies. 
It will be an additional source, but the renewable diesel facilities that replace the refinery are not likely to be a one-to-one replacement for closed refining facilities in terms of supply. And the list of refineries in the U.S. that have closed or are for sale is growing. It's a disturbing process, a disturbing trend that we talked about earlier on drilling deep. Renewable diesel has been one of the only growth areas for them. But those renewable diesel facilities are only there because you can sell LCFS credits and you can sell RINs credits. Or they're there so a company doesn't need to go out and buy their own credits. They can meet their obligations by making low-carbon fuels. Those companies want to keep themselves in compliance with regulations and avoid buying RINs. One thing that came up in the Platt seminar, and we're going to talk about it at our, at our Fuel Buyers Summit, is that as you move more feedstocks into making renewable diesel, there's going to be fewer feedstocks to make biodiesel. So remember, biodiesel is blended into diesel. It can be blended into heating oil, uh, any other kind of product that's a, a distillate like diesel. So the restaurant grease and soybeans and other stuff that now make biodiesel will just be shipped instead to the renewable diesel plants. This actually, I think, has some benefits to the trucking sector. If refiners can meet their renewable fuel obligations through renewable diesel, the cold weather problems that you sometimes get with biodiesel blended into regular diesel might be lessened as a lot of companies, as fewer companies, will be blending biodiesel into regular diesel. And just turn that restaurant grease into renewable diesel, which doesn't have the winter problems, and it could be easing a problem that some truckers run into now in cold weather. We're going to be talking about these issues on September 22nd. Just Google Freight Waves events, and you'll find the link to our Fuel Buyer Summit. We hope to see you there. We are going to turn our attention here on Drilling Deep now to the city of brotherly love. And that's where my colleague Brian Strait was last week. Brian is the editor of Modern Shipper, which is a Freightways product that covers the kind of final mile. I'll let him talk about it a little more. And the big home show, the home delivery show, was in Philly last week. And Brian attended it for a couple of days. And he's going to share what he heard. So, Brian, uh, first of all, welcome to Drilling Deep. Hard to believe we've been working together since I joined Freight. Freight Waves, and uh, I've been doing Drilling Deep now for uh, well over a year and a half, and it's the first time we've had you on. Yeah, thanks, John. It's uh, nice to be on, uh, n- nice to finally get on the show. Um, I know you've asked me in the past, and things haven't always worked out. Um, uh, well, we got you now. Us, but yeah, we got me now. So I'm, I'm here, glad to be on it, and glad I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm, I'm glad to be part of this. So tell me about the show. It's not, not Drilling Deep. Tell me about the Philadelphia <laughs> show. And what kind of market it serves? I know, I, I think right before the pandemic, I was going to attend it because our colleague Mark Solomon couldn't go. He used to cover that. And and this is before you were doing Modern Shipper. And I was really excited about it. It sounded like a great show. And I think the pandemic hit and that was the end of that. So tell me what it's like. It's uh, First of all, the fact that it's an, it was an in-person show in the middle of the pandemic is still pre- pretty notable. Uh, was it well attended? And what kind of uh, exhibitors did you find there? Yeah, so it was it was my first time attending the show. Um the the show is the Home Delivery World. Um it was at the Philadelphia Convention Center or Pennsylvania Convention Center, I should say, in Philadelphia. Um it, it was my first experience there. Um filled with home delivery, um last mile delivery partners, uh providers, uh technology companies. Um can't really say much about uh, the attendance. It, I mean, I it was great to be at an in-person show again. Um, my experience would be that I, I felt like it was not really that well attended compared to previous shows prior, pre-pandemic, if you will. Um, but, I, you know, I don't know what previous attendance of these shows are. There, there were still a lot of people there, though. Um, lot, you know, a lot more than I probably 
I think, thought going in we're going to attend it. Um, quite a few exhibitors. I mean, a couple of hundred, it looked like a, probably at least 200, maybe 150, 200 exhibitors, I would guess, um, that were there. A um, lot of different companies. Uh, this, the panel discussions I attended were pretty well attended by people. Um, so I you know, it got to meet a lot of people, a lot of uh, companies in the space, um, and saw some really some innovative things, uh, some great technologies, and just got a general sense as to what the home delivery space really is these days, um, because it's very different for everybody, as I learned. So how, what, what was the biggest theme? Was it that technology is great and the opportunities are great, or we're never going to have enough workers to really cash in on what we think is going to be the growth, uh, the growth of this field? Well, while those were both topics that came up um, during it, the thing I came away with is that home delivery is hard. Uh, you know, and, and, and no matter, and depending on what you do, if you deliver parcels, if you deliver couches, um, you know, it, it makes a difference. And there is no right or wrong way to do it. There are a lot of ideas out there. Um, and, and, you know, as one attendee told me that not everybody does the same thing, everybody does something different in this space. Um, so. I don't know whether the industry as a whole just hasn't um, come to a con common conclusion as to the best way to handle home delivery or whether, you know, as I, I think probably more likely that there are just a lot of different ways to make home delivery work. Um, and, and it really depends on your business model well, yeah, and it I, depends I on the brand you are. I kind of think of restaurants, you know, uh, uh, not, not necessarily a, a white napkin restaurant, but more of, let's say, a fast casual restaurant, uh, sit down restaurant. Every restaurant has its own way of not just preparing the food, but having the servers serve you and how the food, the order gets back to the kitchen, then the kitchen gets it to the server. It's not it's not standardized, which is why some places have weak service and others have really good service. And I would imagine that in the home delivery field, it's kind of the same thing, that everybody's got a little bit of a different approach, as you said. And it could be that, you know, if you do one or two things right and better than anybody else you get a tremendous leg up over the competition yeah and and then that's true and you know some some businesses they want to do it with their own employees and their own vehicles others want to outsource it you know to gig economy type companies um others work that there are companies that this is all they do um they, they don't they have their own employees they're not gig workers they're with their own employees and all they do is market them ser their services to all these different shippers and brands um, and you know, there are businesses like Target, for instance, that fulfills 95% of its online orders from their stores. Um, but you know, even right. they are trying something completely innovative and they're actually adding in what I would consider a middleman, right? I mean, they, what they're actually working on is, is a system where they move product from their stores to a distribution center. Which is where all the deliver the last mile delivery providers would come and pick up, rather than having FedEx, UPS trucks running to stores all day long. You know, um, yeah, that so seems to be kind a of lot backwards of options. because presumably those 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 stores were eventually were ultimately stocked by the distribution center. So then, does the material then go back from the store to the di distribution center to get sent out to the customer? Yeah. So one of the one of the keynote addresses was Arthur Valdez Jr., which is the chief supply chain and logistics officer for Target, and he kind of explained this process. It, it's a system that they're building. They, they've been trialing it this year in Minneapolis, um, and they plan to add what they what they're calling is sortation centers, um, and they're adding four of them um, in the next 
year or so in Philadelphia, Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And what their concept is, is an order comes in, a store employee builds that order, and then they have a line haul truck that is actually running between stores. In the Minneapolis area, there's 45 stores that feed this sortation center. And this line haul truck goes from store to store to pick up prepackaged boxes, totes, if you will, um, and then takes them to the sortation center where they then use technology to separate out those orders to determine which of those orders should be delivered by Target's own shipped brand that they have, the, the last mile delivery brand, or which one should go on a FedEx or UPS or some other um, carrier, if you will. But he said the key to this and their transformation was really not this end of it, but actually the beginning part of it, which was how to feed the stores. Um, Target had traditionally used what they call floor-loaded truckloads. You know, all the material was loaded onto pallets in the, on the trailers. Trailers would go to the store. They were unloaded in the store. The employees would break down those pallets and distribute stuff out into the stores accordingly. Now what they've done is they've shifted um, to a different model where all the items are pre-sorted at the big distribution center, and they're sent to the store with what he called directional put-away directions, meaning that they came in in totes and containers, and that container told the employee where in the store it needed to go. Did it go to the floor? Did it go to the online wow. you know, e-commerce area? Um, and he said it was really a rethinking of the whole supply chain and how they did that in order to facilitate the ability to, to meet e-commerce orders. And for them, it, it seems to be working. Um, I don't have their quarter two numbers handy, but in quarter one, um, their digital revenue, which includes their e-commerce online sales, grew 50% in the first quarter of this year over last year. Um, they are getting their revenue from same-day pickup and delivery services grew more than 90%. Um, and then if you've been to a Target store, you also know there's a lot of people who pick up the goods right at the store now. Um, they have uh, parking spaces outside most of their stores um, where you can go in, you, you, you say in the app, hey, I'm here, and an employee brings the bar- stuff out to you. Um, and revenue from that service grew 123% in the first quarter this year. So they, they seem to have, I mean, what it seems to be working for them right now. Um, I, I think long-term, you have to look and see, hey, is this the model that works? Because in my mind, you're adding an extra step in the process in some way, right? By adding this sortation center. Um, but that's an example of what some of the stuff that's going on. This is very forward thinking. And I couldn't help, but, I can't help but contrast that with a story you wrote about about Bed Bath and Beyond, which seemed to make a presentation there that was very confessional. <laughs> that said, <Yep. laughs> we, we really didn't know what we were doing in this field, and and now they're waking up to it, which is you know really uh you, you don't hear that kind of honesty uh, in in, a, in right. a forum, but uh, but they they were very honest. So talk about them and and their problems and and their uh, their come to Jesus moments. Yeah, so uh, Bed Bath and Beyond, um, they also own Bye Bye Baby. Um, for people who have younger children, they may shop at Bye Bye Baby. Um, they are like a lot of retailers the last few years, and they struggled with the online and e-commerce world. Um, most of their management in the last year and a half has over, been overturned, um, and new new leaders have come in. And part of that new leadership is an investment in technology and supply chain um, for them. And they realized, and, and it was really driven home for them during the pandemic, that they needed to serve the e-commerce world and the online orders. Um, so they have really set out and tried to do it very quickly, um, spending nearly a billion dollars in all sorts of in supply chain technology and store experience um, changes for them to reinvent themselves and reinvent their supply chain, um, if you will. So they 
they, they're working now with Ryder, for instance. In, in the summer, they signed an agreement with Ryder, and Ryder is opening up regional distribution centers. And those centers will fulfill e-commerce orders as well as replenishment of store. Um, prior to this, uh, it took it took Bed Bath & Beyond about 35 days to restock a store from the time something ran out. Um, their goal is to get that down to under 10 days. Um, so they're, they're much quicker, uh, turn the inventory much quicker as well. Um, and Ryder is helping them do that with automation in these warehouse facilities. But part of it also is the expansion of their how to, and what they would say is how to get the goods to the customer, right? I mean, that's the, that's the end result. So they have added a whole lot of uh, last mile delivery partners. Um, they have added new techniques and new technologies to allow them to service the e-commerce world much better than what they did. Um, so like, for instance, these rider facilities, there's one in Pennsylvania that is uh, accepting store merchandise, as they said. It has, actually isn't open yet, but it's now accepting merchandise and they're filling up the warehouse right now. That warehouse, in some cases, might send the e-commerce orders directly out from the warehouse. In some cases, it might send the materials to the stores, will then be distributed. And they, they've cut deals in the last year. They've cut deals with DoorDash, um, Shipped, Instacart. Um, this summer, they added a deal with Rody, which is a last-mile delivery provider. Um, and they now can deliver, according to their COO, um, John Hartman, they now can deliver to 18,000 zip codes in the U.S. within like a day or two. Um, for their goods, but yeah, so they, 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 the they've, they added, they've had a completely turned. Yeah, and and the other thing that they've added, no, that I think is really interesting too. Yeah, is that in in some of their locations now, a customer that places an order, say on a Tuesday night, can actually pick up that order as early as eight in the morning, even if the store hasn't opened. Um, so they can go and they can pick it up in the store. Um, what what in the industry they call buy online, pick up in store, or BOPUS, um thing, and. So far, um, it, it seems to, again, it, it, their approach seems to be working for them. Um, they generated $3 billion in sales last year through their digital channels, and about 30% of those sales were fulfilled from their stores themselves. So they're not quite at target's level of 95%, but um, two years ago, they were almost at 0%. So uh, they've made a lot of progress, and, and, they, and, and this CEO, COO noted they still have a long ways to go. Um, and they're still working on it, but uh, they are trying to get there and trying to make themselves a truly omni-channel uh, provider for customers. Let's 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 note here that you've been talking about Bed Bath and Beyond. I think we hadn't mentioned Bed Bath Beyond in the last three or four minutes while you were very excitedly talking about what is obviously <laughs> a significant revolution in the way they yeah. do business. It sounds to me like you also had you also had some time for some fun. You test drove an electric cargo bike. Talk about that. I did. I, I said to my wife before we went that I, I want to drive this electric cargo bike that Irby, um, a startup company that's making these and has been testing them in New York City, was doing. And I got the chance to do that. Um, I, I nearly crashed it initially. I was not. I was not ready. I'd never driven an electric bike um, or technically an electric assisted bike before and i was not prepared for the the way it starts um and the way it gets going and 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 of course i'm hauling a trailer as well behind it so um but it, it's a very neat system and once i got it down you know the, they they told me like the training program is usually about four hours for one of these things i, I got a five minute lesson on how to drive it so the fact that i did destroy it they were very happy with <laughs> so um but yeah it's, it's so it's a I mean, we we've all we're all familiar at least with um, electric cargo bikes. I mean, they're 
in many parts of the world, they're very common for delivery systems, especially within um, cities. And there are more and more of them popping up in the United States, especially as you get some areas like in Santa Monica, California, which is creating a, a zero emission delivery zone where they will not allow a vehicle with any kind of traditional fuel to enter the vehicle the zone. So um, people are looking at these cargo bikes as a way to possibly do that. Um, what Irby is trying to do is take the cargo bike and make it um, more useful right? By adding a trailer. And so instead of the cargo hole being part of the bike itself, the bike actually pulls a trailer. And they believe that th there's a couple advantages of that is one, the bike, the trailer can be swapped out very easily. Um, so you can take a trailer and, you, and it hauls one of these cargo containers, which actually just rolls up on this trailer. It's, a, it's a two pieces, um, which allows you to, allows a business to load the cargo container and then have the bike courier show up, pick up the container, drive it to where it needs to go, make the deliveries if it needs to. Um, and they have quite a bit of space. They can hold, according to the company, about 60 bags of groceries, standard bags of groceries in it. So, you know, you yeah. could be looking at uh, four to eight, 10 or more deliveries, depending on how many bags of groceries somebody has. Um, or you can put other things in it. It's got some flexibility to allow uh, packages and other things to be put in it if you wish. Um, but the idea behind the cargo box yeah. is that it can be driven when the box is empty. The bike courier just simply unloads the box at a drop-off point, picks up another box, and continues on his way. So you have a lot of you know you you so constantly you keeping the courier working. It's drop and hook, right? It's a, it's a drop, right? Yeah. You know, in, tr in traditional trucking parlance, it's drop and hook. Yeah. yeah. Um, right. So yeah. It, it provides a lot of utility that way, and the bikes themselves have swappable batteries that only take a few minutes to swap out. So you can even keep the bikes running constantly too if you're if you're swapping batteries. Um, and, and one of the big advantages, and I learned this driving it as well, is that it really doesn't take much effort to, to pilot one of these things. Um, so Charles Jolly, who's the CEO of the company, had noted to me that a traditional bike courier might work two to three hours, especially you think driving around New York and whatnot, you know, two to three hours and you're pretty, you know, you're pretty wiped out, right? From pedaling that bike and hauling cargo. Um, he said, they've got, they've had couriers that are doing six to eight hour shifts and it's, it's really nothing for them. Um, so he believes that the utility, the convenience of being able to swap out the boxes very easily to keep the, the guy moving and earning money is something that will really appeal to these delivery drivers that are currently driving vans around in city locations, um, that they can get on one of these bikes right. and, and do the same amount of work, um, if you will. Um, now they announced last week, a partnership with Axel Hire, which is a last mile delivery firm and national last mile delivery firm, and they'll be working with them to expand this service. Um, each each bike can haul about 800 pounds of cargo in it. And, and they, according wow. to their studies, they believe that it, it's about three times cheaper than running an electric delivery van, and you can deliver about the same amount of stuff in, the, in a shift when all is said and done. So, Let's talk about, yeah. let's come back to one of the first things I mentioned there, and that's uh, the people who are going to staff all these jobs uh, you know, I do the unemployment report or employment report. We'll call, we'll do a half glass half full rather than half empty approach to it. And the number of couriers, the classification of couriers uh, last month in August uh, compared to July took an enormous jump. It's a very important uh, field for the last mile delivery. Uh, how much concern did you hear there about finding bodies to do all these wonderful things? Uh, you know, it was interesting because I, I talked to several different people. Um, the 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 executives I talked to from bigger companies, bigger shippers, retailers, they're concerned about this. 
about getting their product to where it needs to go because the last mile delivery and that driver is an extension of their brand. So if somebody orders something online and it doesn't show up on time, even though their brand, the brand may not be responsible for this, it's a reflection that the brand didn't deliver, right? So they need providers that can do this. Um, when I talk to some of the people that actually are in this space, they're not that as concerned about it, honestly. Um, and, and I think part of it has to do with the way they, um, the, the way they approach it and what they're doing. Um, there, there seem to be quite a few people out there right now um, to do this. And, and the, the question is, you know, I guess it's like a, a, it's a basic economics, right? Are there enough drivers and what's the cost? Right. So if, if you have fewer drivers, as we seem to have now in, in, and workers in general, then the cost just goes up to, to get that service. Um, so there is there is a belief that if as we can get if we get more people into the into the space, um, then that co- the cost to deliver will go down a little bit. Right. Because just from a supply and demand um, perspective. But the bigger concern um, that I came across was something that you've written about a number of times. And that's simply the employee versus the gig worker you know, and the misclassification situation that exists. And there, there is concern, obviously, that they are using providers or, or that are using gig workers and they really should be employees or vice versa um, from that standpoint. And there is little concern, at least, that some of these bigger brands could be leaving themselves open to litigation because, as you know, when lawsuits come out, it's not just the person's impacted. It's also anybody else. It's like a, it's like a car crash, right? I mean, you, you a, a car crash or a truck crash happens. You sue the trucking company as well as the driver and maybe the insurance company as well, simply because they're part of the whole naked, uh, method. So um, I spoke with a company, um, a woman named uh, Wendy Greenland, um, who's the CEO of a company called OpenForce. And they provide an independent contractor management platform. And she said that there, there are some companies like hers as well that do this, but they work really hard to try to differentiate who is a 1099 gig worker and who is an employee and helping the companies, the shippers identify those things. So they don't get caught in that legal limbo there as to what it is and what that person is. Um, and, and she told me some interesting things and one of which, and this was not something I knew, but it was very interesting and in that there are companies out there that hire gig workers and then they offer them cash advances on this, on their earnings, right? So they can help maybe make car payments and so forth. And she said that legally, once that happens, that makes them an employee even though the company may consider them a gig worker. Yeah. So her company works to try to navigate those kind of um, legalities, if you will, um, for firms, and then works with the gig workers on their side to help educate them on what it means to run a business. Um, because many of them don't understand, she said, and, and which is true. And I've, I've seen a lot of uh, social yeah. media posts about this, um, where an Uber driver, for instance, gets in a car crash only to find out that Uber doesn't cover them for that. And their insurance doesn't cover them for that yeah. because they have to have a special insurance policy and things like that. Yeah. When I, when I first started writing about the whole question of independent contractor versus gig workers um, and some of the legal cases, I, I sort of kept thinking that eventually I was going to discover the legal case that established all precedents and defined the job clearly. And what I came to realize was that that doesn't exist. It's never going to exist, and this yeah. is always going to be an area ripe, ripe for litigation. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is, and and that's what um, like Wendy Greenland was explained to me simply is that companies like hers and and like I said, there's other companies out there that do similar things as well. Um, their goal is to try to mitigate that risk, 
and they, they want to mitigate it for both sides, right? They want to mitigate it for the, the brand or the, the shipper that's using the gig worker. They want to mitigate it for the gig worker who does it, especially as she said, and I've heard this from a lot of people too, is that there's a lot of them just like that, that freedom. You know, they want to say, hey, I want to work today or I don't want to work today. Um, so there, there clearly is a market for the gig worker. The question is, how do you make incorporate that gig worker to what the shippers need um, and do it legally? Well, Brian, maybe you'll find out next year at next year's meeting. Maybe I'll join you down in Philadelphia. <laughs> Sounds well, like it's fun. a nice city. It's a nice, it's a nice city, and yeah. uh, I, I was struck. I was struck by uh, some of the architecture in it, and as I was walking around, oh. um, walking around it. So uh, yeah. I, I've not spent much time. I've only been in Philadelphia like once or twice previously in my life. Even though I live in the Northeast, it's not a place I've ever visited much. Um, so it was, it was right because you, 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 you can always go. So why not? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Anyway, <laughs> like, Brian Street, the editor. Stuff. Thank you, my, John. my colleague uh, Brian Street been our guest today. Been our guest today on Drilling Deep. Uh, he is the editor of Modern Shipper, and uh, he also really was the founding father of the editorial operation at Freightways. Uh, he's been our guest today on Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is part of the Freightcast family of podcasts from Freightways. You can find us on all of the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. 